This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers and Wisconsin's legislative Democrats are floating a proposal to eliminate Wisconsin's personal property tax. That comes a few months after the Dems rejected a similar Republican authored proposal. In his veto message for the GOP version of the bill, Governor Evers wrote that he objected to the, quote, unusual and haphazard process by which the legislature pursued the repeal. According to the Capital Times, Wisconsin's personal property tax was implemented in the 1830s before Wisconsin even became a state. Back then, the then territory had no income or sales tax and relied on the measure for its finances. A former aide for Senator Ron Johnson has announced his candidacy for Lieutenant Governor. Ben Vocal served as Johnson's communications director from 2017 until earlier this year, according to the Associated Press. Vocal also had stints on Tommy Thompson's 2012 Senate campaign and Governor Scott Walker's 2018 reelection campaign. Wisconsin's legislative Republicans are floating a resolution that calls for Wisconsin's new legislative lines to adhere as closely as possible to those drawn in 2011. That proposal is drawing strong pushback from legislative Democrats who have long argued that the 2011 district lines are gerrymandered and unconstitutional. A lawsuit challenging those district lines even wound up in the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to issue a ruling on the case. This coming Tuesday is National Voter Registration Day, and the Madison Clerk's Office is partnering with a number of community organizations to encourage folks to register. The Clerk's Office is setting up two community hubs on Atwood Avenue and McKenna Boulevard to help people register to vote. The McKenna Boulevard hub will also feature food and music. The president of the Verona School Board is stepping down. Channel 3000 reports that the school board president, Noah Roberts, has been appointed by Governor Tony Evers to serve as Wisconsin's next state federal director. Per Facebook post from Roberts, the position functions as a liaison between the state and federal government. Roberts has been on the board for the past five years, four of which he served as its president. And now here's your daily daily COVID-19 numbers, courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 2,807 new cases. Just north of 53% of all Wisconsinites have completed their vaccination series. That's nearly 3.1 million people. And that's it for the headlines. Before we turn to more local news, we have a special guest in studio who wants to tell you something about the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus and Stacy Stu Levitan here, reminding you just how important it is for you to sh- for you to show your support for live local news, news you can use, news that matters to you, news that you can do something about by giving us a call two five six two thousand one. That's in the six zero eight area code, or going online to wrtfm.org, or using that fancy new Ward app. You know we've got great. Thank you, gifts. We've got a new shirt, and we've got headphones, and we've got masks. We just got a lot of stuff. But what you really are donating for is because you you listen, you give, you understand the importance of live local news. We we give you more live local news in one week than the commercial radio stations give you in a month. And it's volunteers. I mean, think of what an accomplishment that is, what a testament it is to this community that you, first of all, that you've kept us on the air for 46 years. I mean, that's a pretty astonishing thing to begin with. But the fact that you provide us with the resources, not just the capital resources, but the human resources, volunteers who come in and do go out and, and, and cover the news and bring you the news on a, on a nightly, and a daily basis. It is such a, an accomplishment, and we do a pretty good job. We are an award-winning news organization. We, you know, we submitted... In competitions, statewide competitions, and we bring home a lot of awards. And I'm very proud to be a member of the WRT news team. We hope you are proud to listen to the WRT news team, and you'll be even prouder to be a supporter. So please give us a call 
608-256-2001 or go online to wrtfm.org. Now back to Stacy and Marcus. Thanks, Stu. Earlier today, Wisconsin State Superintendent gave her first State of Education speech in the Capitol Rotunda. Jill Underly, the former superintendent of the Pecatonica Area School District, was elected to her new office in April. Our producer, Jonah Chester, got the details. The past 18 months have tested us in ways we could never have imagined. State Superintendent Jill Underly took office earlier this spring. As COVID cases were on the decline and the potential for a semi-normal fall semester seemed possible. Now, as the state contends with the surging Delta coronavirus variant, those hopes have been dashed. We've seen how tirelessly our teachers have worked to reinvent their practice and the great lengths that they will go to to support our students and their well-being. I could not be prouder of how our educators and school staff have met this moment. Elementary students are the last major group of unvaccinated Wisconsinites, as federal health officials haven't approved vaccines for those under the age of 12. And neither Governor Tony Evers nor President Joe Biden have issued a vaccine mandate for teachers. Several Wisconsin teachers unions have endorsed such a policy, and the Madison Metropolitan School District is currently working on its staff vaccine mandate, which, if approved, will take effect in November. When I visited schools over the past month, I've seen students who are so excited to be learning, and so excited to be learning in person with their peers and their teachers. I know masks are a contentious issue in so many of our communities, but the kids, they didn't seem bothered. They were willing to do what they needed to do in order to keep each other safe and to keep their learning free of disruption. And we could learn a lot from them. Underly also critiqued the state's Republican-held legislature, which she argued doesn't go far enough to meet schools' funding needs. As part of the state's 2021-2023 budget, lawmakers approved $128 million in additional school funding. That's less than a tenth of Governor Evers' initial proposal. Wisconsin is still struggling to make up for the cuts that they were made to public education during the Great Recession, despite the fact that over half the U.S. has found a way to do so. As a consequence, in 2020, we graduated an entire generation of kids who have known nothing but austerity in our school funding, who have known years of divestment in their future. This, folks, is the state of education in Wisconsin. In response to Underly's critiques, Republican State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss wrote in a press release that, quote, Funding for K-12 education in Wisconsin is at historic levels, and this year our schools received a massive amount of one-time federal dollars. The Democrats' singular focus to push more money into schools isn't a winning strategy for our kids, unquote. Make no mistake, the one-time federal money for COVID-19 relief is not enough. It comes with significant strings attached and comes nowhere close to meeting the ongoing needs of our students, our educators, or our communities. Underly also pointed out that stagnating funding from the state is driving school districts to rely on funding referenda. But relying on local referenda only drives inequity and puts us further away from providing a quality public education to every child in every corner of the state. And frankly, it lets state leaders in this building off the hook from their constitutional obligation to our kids and our schools. Underly also called for increased access to mental health support in schools and announced two new task forces, one that will be tasked with finding ways to improve Wisconsin's civic education programs and one with improving literacy rates. Underly's state of education address comes just a few days before lawmakers vote on a controversial bill on critical race theory. The bill would bar, quote, race or sex stereotyping in instruction provided to pupils, unquote. Violating that rule would open districts up to lawsuits and even the loss of state financial aid. The bill received the approval of a legislative committee yesterday and will be before the full assembly for a vote on Tuesday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 6.16 p.m. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Stu Levitan, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. 
Thank you, Marcus. And I want to tell you, friends, that was a more substantive and detailed report on Superintendent of Schools Jill Underlee's address on the state of education than you're going to get in any other radio station in the state of Wisconsin. That's the kind of comprehensive, in-depth, and important news that we provide you Monday through Thursday, every night here from 6 to 7, just part of the great news and public affairs programming on WRT. Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, the live local news, the morning buzz, a public affair, Madison Bookbeat, Letters and Politics, hours and hours of volunteer-powered, community-supported news and public affairs that is award-winning in the state of Wisconsin and beyond. We're very proud of what we do. We thank you so much for what you have helped us do. And we know that you listen and you give, and we hope that now is one of the times that you will show your support, your frankly, your appreciation and your acknowledgement of what we've been doing for you. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001. Go online to wrtfm.org or use the WART app. You listen, you give, and we appreciate it. Dane County is poised to allocate more than $8.2 million to fund the construction of 465 affordable housing units. Those units will be scattered across the region with 189 in the city of Madison and 276 in the county's other communities. For more on the project and how county officials are approaching affordable housing in a pandemic economy, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dane County Executive Joe Parisi. Can you walk me through the selection process for these new projects? You know, how do you select who gets funding from the county to build affordable housing? Yeah, our team and our division of um, housing and our CDBG team staff, they um, look at the, the different projects that have been submitted. And what we're looking for is projects that will obviously deliver the biggest bang for the buck as far as providing more affordable housing. And usually these um, projects are in the form of partnerships. And, you know, one of the reasons we developed our fund was because there are some, you know, funds out there. There are RETA tax credits. There are other funding, you know, pieces of the puzzle available. Um, but we wanted to create a fund in Dane County to help bring more of these projects across um, the finish line. And so people will submit their projects to the team who looks at their proposal and, you know, assesses it for, you know, accessibility, affordability. What are the chances of the project moving forward? Are they going to get the other funding that they're looking for? And, you know, it's been great because we, we, we have a number of projects that get submitted to us every year. Um, we started this in 2015. In the first year that we did this, all of the projects were from within the city of Madison. Um, but since then, the county team has made a, a big effort to draw in communities from around the county to take part in, in, in development of affordable housing, too. And that has just grown by leaps and bounds um, every year. So now we have projects within the city. We have projects from, you know, up small towns, suburbs, um, the whole community is recognizing the need for more affordable housing, and people are much more open to developing affordable housing than potentially they were in years past. How does the county approach affordable housing projects um, in Madison versus outside of Madison? I have to imagine there are, there are different approaches for both categories. Yeah, so they look at, you know, a lot of this, this a lot of things are similar, right? You look at the, the you know, how much they're going to provide as far as housing. You look at the, the feasibility of the proposal, um, you know, but you also look at location and access, you know, as far as how much people are going to, you know, need transportation access, you know, the services that any of us need, um, you know, in the course of our day. So we see a lot of projects, for example, this year, from some of the, the bigger suburbs, you know, we have, you know, Sun Prairie, we have Monona, which is obviously, you know, has services available in it, Oregon, et cetera. So it's, it's basically very similar, but, you know, one does have to take into account then transportation and those kinds of issues too. 
So since this project was initially set up, I believe it was approved in the county's 2015 budget. Correct me if I'm wrong with that. Including this most recent round, you've allocated $25.7 million for affordable housing projects in the county. Now, has there ever been a case where where funding was allocated to a project and that project ultimately fell through? Or for most of the projects uh, that the county signs on to provide funding for? Are those, you know, in the in the final stages of being set up? Yeah, most of them, you know, most of them move forward. To my knowledge, and I, I would have to double check because, as you mentioned, it's been a few years. If there there may have been projects that that were going to move forward that didn't, and then that those, if that's the case, those dollars would just be reallocated to another project. But we have we've never lost money, um, you know, investing in a project that you know went belly up or something like that. So when these, not to my knowledge. So when these projects get built, is there is there any what does the county do to ensure accountability in this? How do you ensure that these affordable housing units that are marked as affordable housing actually go to the folks who need them? Or is that out of the county's hands and that's more in the hands of a federal city, what have you, regulators? Yeah, there's you know, there's there's audits on a number of levels because all these projects, you know, the vast majority of them get WIDA tax credits and they get other funding and you know, and, and we follow up. I, I'm not familiar off the top of my head with our exact auditing process um, that, that we do in the county, but there are specific, you know, specific numbers that have to be have to be reached. If you look at each project, it will list on it the number of units available to folks making, you know, different percentages of, of the county median income. And, and most projects will have a mixture of that, everywhere from folks who are, you know, currently experiencing homelessness um, then all the way up to a number of market rate apartments within the same building just in order to make the finances work. So has COVID-19 impacted how you at the county approach affordable housing projects or, or any of your housing initiatives in general? What has the pandemic's impact on those been over the past 18 months? Well, we do a lot throughout county government, certainly in response to the pandemic and as it, as it relates to, you know, some of the impacts on, on people who are experiencing homelessness and others who maybe haven't been able to pay their rent because of um, the, the, the pandemic and, and losing their jobs. And we have literally multi-million dollar programs that are in place now on a couple of fronts, um, the eviction prevention programs that we've been running for, you know, over a year now and continue to run to help people stay in their homes. And then we've invested in um, a program. First of all, we, at the beginning of the pandemic, we moved about 400 people experiencing homelessness into hotels. Um, and we wanted to make sure that, you know, to get the people who were most vulnerable, um, older people, people with, with, with health conditions, um, families into hotels and away from congregate settings. And now we're in the process. We still are helping people out in hotels and we will be, you know, through the winter and in, into next summer. Um, but we're, we've invested in a program called Hotels to Housing where we're working with those, um, those guests who are in, in the hotels now and helping them find housing. And part of that program is, you know, we, we work with community organizations and provide services, wraparound services and support, and are paying up to two years um, rent ahead. So folks who have been experiencing homelessness, you know, have that foundation so that they can get into an apartment, so that they can get back on their feet. So on the kind of, you know, human services department side, we have a lot of that going on. On the literal housing side, there have been a couple of, of, of impacts of the pandemic. First of all, obviously, people whose jobs have been lost or reduced due to the pandemic has resulted in, you know, housing being even less attainable to them and less affordable. And at the same time, um, just like, you know, almost every other product out there, we're seeing that the cost of building has increased greatly. So it's a little tougher for the developers to put together financing now because, you know, something that is being built now could cost 20, 30%, you know, more than it would have just a couple of years ago. So it's really strained the entire system again, um, just with the cost of putting these projects together. So, you know, that's why these dollars are just so important in order to make these projects work. Executive Preezy, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Before I let you go for the afternoon, is there anything else you want to add to the record about this new uh, about these new affordable housing units? Anything about the county's affordable housing projects in general you'd like to add to the record? 
Yeah, I, I can just say, you know, we're, we're really um, excited about the fact that so many communities are, are asking for and putting energy into developing more and more um, housing. And there's been a lot of good work done um, by county staff, by Olivia Perry and our planning department, um, who convened the Dane County Housing Initiative to bring in folks from other communities and builders and advocates um, to to work on how we can develop more housing. And, you know, there's a lot of work to do. We're a community that's adding 70,000 people every decade. <laughs> so um, there'll be no shortage of work to do to keep up with the demand. Executive Parisi, thanks as always uh, so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night. Joe Parisi is the Dane County Executive. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We have lots more stories coming up. As Wisconsin's superintendent calls for increased school funding, we'll examine the flaws in Wisconsin's current school funding formula. We'll check in on a legal challenge seeking to block the fall wolf hunt. And Radio Chipstone remembers the life and work of a local blacksmith. But now we'll check in once again with Stu Levitan. Then we'll hear some news from around the world. Thank you, Marcus and Stacy. We appreciate it. And we had that that bell tells us we've got people to thank. Marion from Madison has made a generous donation. We appreciate her support. She especially likes the Thursday of Public Affair. That's with Alan Ruff. Says he does great shows. She appreciates Madison Bookbeat. Well, thank you, Marion. She says that I do great interviews. Thank you. I try. And next on Monday, we'll have Day Zyron talking about his new book, The Kaepernick Effect. And she cites the great work that Jonah Chester, whom you just heard, the the work that Jonah did on the January 6th Capitol invasion, interviewing Madison citizens about what they felt uh, was going on. And she said that was great. So we appreciate Marion from Madison and we appreciate Liam from Mount Horeb. Thank you, Liam. We appreciate your uh, support. We appreciate Marion's support. And we will appreciate your support in support of live local news and the entirety of the Wart News and Public Affairs programming. You know, it's re- uh, and you can do that by going online to wortfm.org, going to the Wart app, or giving us a call at 608-256-2001. You know, it is, a, as I said in the previous break, I think it's a really remarkable accomplishment that during this pandemic, we were still able to produce a live local news show four nights a week, four live hours of local news a week, in addition to the eight o'clock buzz, in addition to a public affair, in addition to Madison Bookbeat and and, uh, Letters in Politics. I'm just so proud of what we've accomplished here at the at WRT, not just, of, of course, the news and public affairs, also the music. But right now I'm, I'm speaking specifically about news and public affairs and what a great job that Charlie Pittman does as our news and public affairs director. And we've been able to do that thanks to you. You've given us the, the tools to do the job. You've made the donations that have let us buy the tape recorders, buy the microphones, buy the uh, shields to put on uh, the air baffles to put on uh, on the uh, the microphones to keep them safe. You've given us the donations so we could buy licenses and and Zoom opportunities and just on and on and on. And we hope that you appreciate what you have done for this community. Uh, y- the people who are the listener sponsors, I mean, we've got a lot of listeners and we've got listener sponsors and the listener supporters, the listener sponsors, they're the ones who provide the bulk of our financing. We don't, as you know, we don't get, uh, we obviously don't run commercials. We do underwriting because that's an important part of our financial stability. Uh, the most important part of our financial stability, of course, is our listener supporters. And the best way that you can be a listener support of providing financial stability is being an evergreen monthly donor. And if you give a call at 608-256-2001, uh, uh, I think um, Michael or uh, Susan can explain just, just how that works. It's You can make a you, you can amortize over the course of the full year what your donation would be. And we've got a great new shirt that's got the uh, the old RKO um, retro, you know, the 1930s design. It goes for a hundred dollars as a straight thank you gift. But if you be, do it, if you do it as a monthly donor, it's only eighty nine ninety. So that's more than a ten percent reduction because money talks. Nobody walks. Our till is no. We need to fill. Can't call collect, but do call correct. Oh man, that's a that's an oldie, but a goodie. You know, we are. 
We've been here for 45 years, going on 46, and it's thanks to you, the listeners. You listen, you give, you hear from us throughout the year. Now's the time that we need to hear from you. 608-256-2001, WRTFM.org. We'll be back. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. In her State of Education address today, Wisconsin State Superintendent Jill Underly said that the legislature was forcing more and more schools to rely on funding referendums to make ends meet. Back in June, the investigative news outlet Wisconsin Watch published a piece that detailed how Wisconsin's 30-year-old funding formula is failing to keep pace with schools' financial needs. In this archival interview, which aired in June, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Heather Graves, a reporter with the Press Times of Green Bay. Working with Wisconsin Watch, Graves examined the failures and potential remedies for Wisconsin's school funding formula. You just published a, a new story in Wisconsin Watch, and I should add that this is a collaboration between uh, Wisconsin Watch and you all over at the Press Times in Green Bay that takes a look at the state's funding formula for schools. Can you give me a little bit of history here? I understand the way that the state funds schools is fundamentally different pre-1993. How does the system in, the, let's say, the, the 80s compare to how schools are funded now? Well, I'm not a... A political historian, but um, when before the current revenue cap formula was put into place, um, districts would spend pretty much whatever they wanted to, and then the state would be on the hook for picking up a portion of that. When Tommy Thompson, former Governor Tommy Thompson, came in, he enacted the revenue cap formula in 1993, and that set a cap of how much each district would spend. And if you wanted to go over that, then you would have to go to referendum. And that was based off spending that was happening in 1992. So if you were a low-spending, poor district in 1992, you are still a low-spending district today. So there's, there's this gap between the higher-spending districts and the lower-spending districts. Now, flash forward 30 years to the to the modern age, and that change means that a majority, I believe you reported in your story, it was roughly 70 percent of school districts now go to referenda to get any additional funding needed, correct? That is correct. If uh, Since er, 2016, seven out of every 10 of Wisconsin's 421 districts proposed a referendum. And, and, and of those proposed, nearly two-thirds of them passed. From your story, it, it seems like both Democrats and Republicans are interested in altering the system, but like many things, they just can't seem to agree on exactly how to go about doing that. That is a 100% correct statement. Um, when we first started the series, we knew that both sides felt differently on how to address school funding. We knew there was a divide there, and then through our reporting, it only proved our theory, and it highlighted the two different philosophies. It seems to me that the Republicans believe there isn't enough money to make significant changes, and they see referendums um, as a tool for districts to use if they want to spend more. Then you go on the other side of the aisle, um, Democrats are saying that there is money there, and significant changes can happen if lawmakers approve Governor Evers' budget. In late 2018, early 2019, there was a bipartisan Blue Ribbon Commission on School Funding, and they looked at how tax dollars were distributed to schools, and together they came up with 20 recommendations for legislative actions, such as restoring the state's commitment of two-thirds funding when that first formula was done in 1993, per-pupil adjustments with inflation, and weighting low-income pupils in the general school aids to update those revenue limit formulas. For example, with the Inflation, in the past decade, the revenue caps have rose 6%. Inflation has risen 17%. So you can see how districts are constantly falling behind because it's not raising at the same rate as inflation. So that bipartisan commission puts forward its, its I believe, it's 20 recommendations. And do they just die in the legislature? Are they, are they still being considered? Where are they at right now? Are they, in effect, um, shelved? 
Yeah, through our um, interviews, they are at the forefront, I guess you could say, of the legislature's minds. Some little work has been done. I would say like the easiest ones to achieve have happened, but are not really noticed because not a lot happens with them. The heavy hitters have not been touched yet. There is talk out there, and there has been bills that put that were put forth, but they've failed to get any further. You might have already touched on, on a few of them already, but can you outline for me what those heavy hitters from the proposal are? What are What are the proposals that are having the hardest time making it through the legislature? Well, it's restoring that the state's commitment to that two-thirds funding. When it was launched in 1993 under Governor Tommy Thompson, the state committed to funding two-thirds of public education. That is no longer happening. They do not fund two-thirds. Also, the per-people adjustment with inflation, like I said, it was the growth of the revenue cap has grown 6% in the last decade, while inflation has grown 17%. Um, so they're constantly falling behind. They can't even keep up with the everyday rise of cost of inflation. Um, and then weighing low-income pupils in the general school aid. So um, your ELL learners, your low-income districts, looking at that as a 1.5 per pupil instead of just a one pupil. And there's been there's been talk. There's been some movement with that, but none of those are anywhere close to a vote to actually happening. On the subject of, of varying districts and their different needs, how does the dependence and the growing dependence on funding referenda play out in rural communities versus more urban ones in, let's say, Green Bay or here in, here in Madison? Well, we're based in Green Bay, and we cover Brown County. Seymour is a rural district that we cover, and they just went to referendum this year. And Green Bay, which is like nearly 50 times larger also went to referendum in 2017, and they're already starting preliminary discussions for its next ask within the next year or two. The conversations have already been starting. Actually, they're starting, I believe, this week. And then when Green Bay went to referendum in 2017, they opted to just do the 10 years override because they, at the time the Blue, Commission, Blue Ribbon Commission on School Funding was starting up, and they were hoping and expecting some state or some change at the state level. As you know, that did not happen. And so now they're finding themselves having to go back to referendum. So the problem doesn't discriminate based on district. As you know, in Madison, the voters strongly approved the $350 million referendum in November of 2020, 317 of that going to capital improvements and $33 million operating funds phased in over three years. So it doesn't discriminate based on your zip code, your region. It's something that all districts throughout the state are struggling with. It's like they're pulling the only lever that they have to make ends meet. All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Heather Graves, a reporter with the Press Times up there in Green Bay. Heather, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's 6.40 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. And before we turn to our next story, we're going to check back in with Stu Levitan on Wart's Fall Pledge Drive. Well, thank you, Stacy. That's right. We are, we're still here down at uh, the station Bedford Street. And it's such a great thrill to be back in the station, uh, in the studio at Bedford Street. Some of us are, are, are here. Some of us are acting remotely. And, and that's another great accomplishment that we've uh, undertaken during this pandemic to be to have the ability to do news and public affairs and the music programming remotely. And that, again, is thanks to the support that you have given us by letting us buy the technology, buy the the, the licenses to, so people can edit their tape from home, to buy the tape recorders and uh, microphones so reporters can go out and gather the news. We are we are so thankful of what you have uh, helped us do, and now is you know the time that we need to remind you of of all that we've done, and to hope that you will continue your support by giving us a call at six zero eight two five six two thousand one, or going online to wrtfm.org, or using that Ward app. And that Ward app is an example of how we have grown the technology to meet the demands of the modern age. You know, they're starting to make cars without radios, and it's a real challenge to radio stations to. Figure out how to stay current with the technology.
technology for new generations. You know, when, when you go on the air in 1975 and your listenership ages with your technology, you have to, A, get new listeners, and B, get new technology. Uh, we're trying to get that new technology, and we hope that we will be attracting those new listeners. But right now, you're the ones who are listening. We know that you listen. We hope that you'll give. Uh, we've got the thank you gifts, which are, you know, incidental, because you don't do it for the merch. You do it for the to keep the station not just surviving, but thriving. So please, give us a call, 608-256, area code in the uh, 256, you know what I'm saying, wardfm.org. Go use the app. Let's hear some more live local news from Stacy and Marcus. Earlier this week, six Wisconsin Ojibwe tribes sued the state's Natural Resources Board in an attempt to stop this November's gray wolf hunt. In their filing, the tribes argued that the hunt tramples tribal treaty rights and that the board, quote, failed to use sound biological principles in establishing the quota for the upcoming hunt, unquote. For more of the case, Thursday 8 o'clock Buzz host Tony Castaneda spoke with Gussie Lord, a managing attorney for Earth Justice, an environmental legal firm representing the tribes in this case. What are the main points uh, that are involved in this suit? Well, the Ojibwe bands in Wisconsin are alleging a violation of their treaty rights here. There are treaties um, that were in place in 1837, 1842, that guaranteed the Ojibwe bands rights to hunt, fish, and gather off-reservation. The way those, those treaty rights have been adjudicated is that those tribes are entitled to 50% of the harvestable resource uh, in the ceded territory, roughly the northern third of Wisconsin. So the Ojibwe bands have the right to, to hunt and fish off reservation. You may be familiar with some of the fishing uh, controversies that happened in the 80s and 90s. Once the, the state has, has decided how much of a resource is harvestable, whether that's deer, whether that's uh, you know walleye, whether that's wolves, then the Ojibwe bands have a right, those members have a right to take half the resource, the allocated resource, free of regulation from the state. The reason for that is the Ojibwe band's rights predated the state, uh, predated statehood, and they predated the formation of the United States government. These are rights that the Ojibwe bands retained. These aren't rights that, that have been given to them by the state or by the federal government. These are inherent rights of the Ojibwe uh, to harvest off-reservation. So the violations that we've alleged in our lawsuit are that the state, A, it didn't, it didn't have a population estimate when it set um, the harvest here. The DNR set a harvest at 130. The National Resources Board said, you know what, we think the Ojibwe are not going to um, do what we want them to do with their share of the resource, so we're going to go ahead and, and set a, a allocation of 300 wolves um, so that if the Ojibwe bands claim their 50%, we can still harvest 150 um, for non-tribal hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's now, problematic in a number of ways. First, I, again, they don't have a clear sense of what the population is because of the way the wolf hunt was carried out in February, that rushed wolf hunt where the state went way over their allocation. And then they don't have a population goal. Their management plan is from 1999. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, there's just a number of problems the way the state is proposing to carry out this wolf hunt. Now, let's talk uh, a little bit about that earlier wolf hunt that was called for February, um, uh, just sure. slapped together, and what happened there. Have the tribes, um, have they gone into any litigation over what happened with that in terms of the legality of that hunt? What's going on with that? And do we know how many wolves are in Wisconsin right now? You know, the truth is we don't know how many wolves are in Wisconsin right now because we don't really know, and DNR has stated, they don't really know the effect of that wolf hunt. Um, that that happened in, in February as far as, as how it affected the population. So, as you know, that happened really quickly. The, the tribes were opposed to that hunt, um, but I think it was something like nine days um, between the time that Hunter Nation, which is a Kansas-based group, filed a lawsuit saying the state had to have a hunt after the state DNR said, you know, let's wait, let's study the population, let's try to figure this out, let's consult with the tribes. Um, and then they were court-ordered to, to hold that hunt under the Wisconsin state statute that mandates a wolf hunt if it's not uh, listed under the Endangered Species Act or under the, under the state, uh, listed as a state threatened or endangered species. 
So, you know, they really quickly had that hunt. As you know, it was a bit of a debacle. Uh, went um, way over, as you mentioned, almost 100 wolves over, subsumed the entire Ojibwe share uh, impermissibly. And, and it took place in, in February when wolves are pregnant. They don't know usually or when the, when the state had the wolf hunts back in um, 2012, 2014. Those hunts, uh, the quota was filled in the fall. It was filled before um, the breeding season. So the state hasn't had time to really know how that, that hunt during the breeding season, all of those wolves were pregnant, uh, how that affected the population. So they don't have a population estimate, which is a, it's necessary to set a, a harvestable allocation. You don't know how many um, wolves can be harvested if you don't know what the population is. They also don't have a population goal. The number 350 has been thrown around, but that was set in 1999, again, before anybody really knew how how the wolf recovery was going to look how much of the state the wolves could could occupy. Now, th- there have been some other lawsuits filed by other environmental uh, advocacy groups. Are you guys tied in at all? Is this suit um, uh, joining uh, them in their actions? Well, there there's a, a federal lawsuit that Earth Justice has brought in California um, on the federal delisting. But as far as the state lawsuits, you know, those are different groups. And I can speak a little bit about those. I know that there's a, a lawsuit that was filed in state court on behalf of a number of environmental organizations, basically alleging what uh, the Natural Resources Board did and what the DNR uh, did in setting this quota for the fall hunt, um, violated a number of state procedural laws. Um, they also allege that the hunt itself is unconstitutional because it doesn't allow for um, any discretion um, on the part of DNR. And again, I'm not a you know Wisconsin state law expert, so this is just a really really broad um, mm-hmm. you know overview of my understanding of those cases. So that's that's pending. There was a there was a lawsuit brought by the state attorney general to uh, remove the natural resources board head, uh, right. Mr. Preen. Um, that allegation was that he, you know, went beyond his term, which ended in May, and that he should be removed from the board because the current governor has has picked someone else to, mm-hmm. to fill that slot. But that person has not been confirmed by the Senate. My understanding, the state Senate, is my understanding that they have not held confirmation hearings for that person. Um, and so that lawsuit was dismissed. I'm not sure whether last week, I'm not sure whether that will be appealed. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the uh, allegations of discrimination? How are the tribes alleging that this is also a discriminatory act? Absolutely. So there are there are only two reasons that a state might um, might regulate the tribes the tribes hunt, um, and that's if it's necessary for state conservation of the resource or if it's necessary for protection of the public health and safety. Neither one of those things is present here. Um, but even if if it were, the state regulation cannot discriminatorily favor non-tribal hunters, and it cannot discriminatorily hurt the tribal uh, share. Now, as, as was illustrated by the February hunt, the tribal share was completely subsumed by non-tribal hunters and, and then 100 more wolves uh, on top of that. And so the way that the Natural Resources Board discussed this matter in its August uh, its August meeting, you know, the, the DNR proposed 130, and then the Natural Resources Board went on to say, you know what, that's uh, half of that is going to go to the tribes. Let's double that. Let's more than double that. So basically, we can take the tribe share as well. And we believe that was intentionally discriminatory against the tribes. All it would take is for. Uh President Biden to declare uh, wolves back on the Endangered Species Act. And I know that the tribes are among, um, well, like 200 other tribes, Ojibwe. Uh, They sent a letter to uh, Secretary Deb Haaland, who is also Native American, uh, demanding the restoration of Endangered Species Act as far as it uh, uh, relates to wolves. Do you see that uh, coming down before November? Well, what we've heard so far is that the Fish and Wildlife Service is going to um, institute a review of the western, the, I think the northern Rockies population in Montana, Idaho, that population of, uh, of the gray wolf. We haven't heard anything similar about um, the western Great Lakes population, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Um, so we haven't, although the tribes have requested that, uh, the Ojibwe band specifically have requested that of Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Secretary Holland of the Department of the Interior. We haven't heard anything yet uh, to indicate that that, um, that re-listing of the wolves is forthcoming. Certainly, um, 
not by November. Gussie Lord from Earth Justice, a managing attorney. I want to thank you very much uh, for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Tony. Earlier this week, the blacksmith, Aaron Howard, passed away. Howard was a prolific artist, and his work will continue to live in small and large spaces across the country. His installations at the Madison Children's Museum will delight young and old folks for many years to come. In this archival episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields found Howard in his happy place, surrounded by fire and iron. The man you hear muttering and clanking about is Aaron Howard. He's a blacksmith, and he's about to turn an ordinary railroad spike into a bottle opener. The roar you hear is his source of heat. It's called a forge, and it can reach temperatures over 2,000 degrees. When the piece is about the color of the inside of the forge, that's the temperature I want to work at. You know, it steals real hard at room temperature, but if you kick it up 2200 degrees it's there's nothing you can't do in hot iron that you can't do in clay once the spike reaches temperature and howard strikes this railroad iron while it's hot it will be changed forever so this is my power hammer which i affectionately call bertha it's a hundred pound bradley upright strap hammer and uh, you can see that it just really forged that railroad spike down quite a bit how much I flatten that out in one heat. A heat is a session at the anvil or under the power hammer. As soon as I pull it out of the forge and start working it, that's a heat. So, you know, we try and do things in as few heats as possible. So like, you know, by hand, this would have taken me maybe three heats. Under the power hammer, it takes me one. Blacksmithing is loud. I have to talk to Howard while the iron heats up for another round. To get going in blacksmithing, all you need is something to heat with, something to hit with, and something to hit on. And then you can make everything from there. You can make all the, all the tongs, hammers, you know, I make everything but my anvils. You know, I make my own hammers, my own stakes, my own tongs, you know, everything you see on that table is all, all tools that I've, I've made. And that's one of the things I love about smithing, I guess, is the, really the simplicity of the tools what you can do with them. I mean, since the Bronze Age became the Iron Age, blacksmithing at its core hasn't changed. You know, if a blacksmith from 300 years ago walked in my door, he would immediately recognize the tools on this end of the shop. Nothing's changed there. And uh, yeah, yeah, th this is probably the, the key instrument in this shop is my hammer. You know, I couldn't imagine, I could improvise an anvil and I could improvise the heat space, but I need a hammer to forge things. My cute little first hammer. You can see this is just maybe a pound, and a little Aaron swinging this when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. This is this is the hammer right here. I still got it. I'll probably be buried with it. I'm in no rush. It's round three. Howard is winded, but nowhere near throwing in the towel. With each blow, the red hot iron moves in waves away from the hammer. Kind of like dropping a stone into water, but slower. It's my favorite part is watching the metal move and having the control to move it. You know, I decide to hit it here and I watch the metal move. You know, and that's amazing. It never, I never tire of that. It's amazing. And then, and then that aha moment when all that beating, all of a sudden it just becomes something. It becomes a flower, it becomes a scroll, it becomes you know, some other decorative element, but there's this, you go through all these steps and you're just thinking, how could it ever get here? And then it just, this aha moment happens. And it's just amazing to watch the piece just kind of, like you hit it and it's, it's done. There it is, you know, that last hammer blow. So the true fun is really right now, when I'm here, this is my happiest place. I'm standing here between my two anvils in front of my forge. It's when life generally goes pretty good. And even when I'm having a bad day, I can grab a hammer and a hot piece of iron and I can beat the hell out of something until it's pretty, you know? And that, I, I love that. 
With the last blow of his hammer, Howard finishes transforming the once rusty railroad tie into a bottle opener. piece of steel and stick it in the quench tank. He drops the red-hot metal into a large bucket of water and within seconds what was once over 2,000 degrees is cool enough to hold in his bare hand. For WORT, I'm Jonifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonifer Fields and Tony Castaneda. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening and pledging. I am your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm host Stacey Harbaugh. For one last time, let's check in with Stu Levitan before we go. Good night and thanks. Keep those pledges coming. Thank you, Stacy and Marcus. And that's right. This w- this is the last live local news until Monday. Think what could happen over the next couple of days. You never know what kind of crazy stuff could go on. So you've got two minutes. You've got a minute and 56 seconds to make your pledge to support live local news. And who knows what could happen until the next time we're on. So give us a call at 608-256-2001. Go online to wrtfm.org or go to the WART app and and be like Marion and, and be like Liam from Mount Horeb and, and do support live local News. You know, it is such an astonishing thing that we're able to provide you with four hours of live local news each week. And that's in addition to other public affairs programming like the eight o'clock buzz and a public affair and Madison Bookbeat and uh, letters in politics. It just goes on and on. It's a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, we think we're doing a pretty good job. And, you know, when we go to these statewide competitions, they think we're doing a pretty good job and we bring home some some pretty nice awards. We don't do it for the competition. We do it because we want to represent the community because the because the community has been there for us since 1975. Now think about it. When we went on the air in 1975 it was with a 100-foot transmitter on Winnebago Street at a building that no longer exists. And now we're down here on South Bedford Street in the great Bassett neighborhood. We're not only on an 800-foot transmitter out on the Beltline. We're on the Internet. We've got archives that you can search anytime you want to. And we've got a Wart app. That's the kind of technology that we're using to keep pace with the modern age to, you know, not just survive, to, to quote William Faulkner, but to thrive. To do that, we need your continued support. So please, you don't do it for the merch. We've got, you know, the shirts and, and, the, and the headphones and everything. We do it because... Well, you do it because you listen and you give. So please, 608-256-2001, wartfm.org. Stay tuned for Perpetual Notion Machine with Kai Brito. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.